You're listening to Plenary Session. On today's episode of Plenary Session, you're in for a bonus episode. This is roughly edited, but it's the majority of what I said. I've removed some of the comments of the audience, uh, but we've provided the bulk of the lecture, and I hope you find it interesting. But first, a plug. If you like this episode and you like this podcast, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a review. It, it really goes a long way. Follow us at plenary underscore session on Twitter or email us plenary session podcast at gmail.com. What are we doing right? What could we be doing better? And what do you want to hear about in the future? We are happy to field your requests. Thanks so much for having me. I'm going to talk to you today about how to move products to the clinic with fewer reversals. Maybe what we need is more translation failure. Okay, so allow me to unpack all of these terms. Um, but first, disclosure. Uh, I am the author of this book, which is published by Johns Hopkins University Press, and that's why I'm very rich. Uh, I put together a podcast called Plenary Session. Uh, it's on the iTunes store. We've been doing it for about two and a half months and have a great response. We talk a lot about some of the issues I'll talk about today and maybe a little bit more about oncology in general. We have interviews with people from around biomedicine um, in the second half of the show and those tend to be broadly accessible. Okay, so I think, well I hope, uh, everyone in this, many of the people in the room are engineers and I think engineers approach biomedicine often from the point of view of somebody who wants to develop a product in the space. Um, you think probably a great deal, or I hope you do, or at least some of you do, otherwise I've totally missed the mark. I hope some of you think a great deal about how to move novel products from conception to product to the clinic to hopefully make a difference in people's lives, which is really the goal of all of biomedical discovery. And I think that's very important to think about. And I think as you think about that, you often think about some of the pitfalls that you encounter in your work which likely has to do with something called translation failure or the difficulty in bringing a product to market. Somewhere along that path, there's gonna be a translation failure. We're not gonna succeed in phase three. Maybe we won't have the results in phase two we hope for. Maybe we'll succeed, but we won't get to market. Or you know, maybe there'll be some difficulty actually at solving the engineering problem. There are many, many pitfalls along the way. And I think you think a great deal about that. I think as a practitioner, I think we think a great deal about something else. We think a great deal about products that come to market that often persist on the market for many, many years and in retrospect are found not to do what we thought they're, they're meant to do. They don't actually accomplish their stated goals. We call that medical reversal. So I think developers hate translation failure. Practitioners really hate reversals. And I hope to show you how these two concepts are linked in this talk. I did my oncology training at the National Cancer Institute in Washington, D.C. And when I started there, there was a very senior physician who worked there for over 30 years. And he told me a story. He said, in the early 1980s, circa 1982, he was just starting out at the National Cancer Institute. And he had done his training at Washington University Hospital in St. Louis, which is a very good hospital, very good biomedical hospital. And when he started working on the lymphoma wards at the NCI, there was an even more senior physician, one of these people who I won't name, but whose name is sort of synonymous with the field you know, the kind of person who writes all the textbook chapters, the kind of per person many people revere. And this senior person pulled him aside, and I think he must have been in his early 30s at the time, and said, hey, in Wash U, do you all still use CHOP to treat lymphoma? CHOP, of course, is a combination of four drugs used to treat lymphoma, and at the time, in the early 1980s, it was the standard of care. And this person responded, yes, absolutely, we do. And then the senior person laughed and said, of course you do. You know, that's the kind of place you're from. You still use CHOP. Implying that it was an antiquated regimen, that we had better things out there, and there you are in your backwoods, um, you know, middle America practice, and you're still using this old treatment regimen, and we've moved on from there. And now that you're at the National Cancer Institute, you're going to learn how to really treat lymphoma. Because that was the implication of this. And this story, I think, stuck in this person's mind because, you know, 30 years later, they tell the story as if it were yesterday. CHOP, of course, are these four medications. Three of them are chemotherapy drugs. So it doesn't matter what they are. It's hard to read because of the slides being cut off. But it's three cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs, the kind that many of us are familiar with, can cause hair loss or nausea, low blood counts, these kind of nonspecific drugs that kill cells simply by virtue of dividing more quickly. And the fourth drug is prednisone, a steroid medication. 
and it was a very potent lymphoma treatment and could even cure about 50% of patients who underwent the treatment in these years. Actually had long-term five-year overall survival and, and were thought to be free of disease and those really carried forth many, many years. Meanwhile, at the National Cancer Institute, they were pioneering this combination called Pro-Mesitabom. It contains some of the same drugs as the CHOP regimen, cyclophosphamide, adriamycin, vinca, uh, but it also has methotrexate, bleo, cytarabine. It has other drugs, and the dose of the drugs is slightly different. This is a more combination drug regimen. And the thought was that the reason cancer still evades this treatment is that there are resistance mechanisms in the cell. But if you have different types of drugs that hit different biocellular pathways, you will actually take away all the resistance mechanisms and you will eradicate the disease. So this was the principle. This is why the senior physician kind of scoffed at that junior person from WashU. And in fact, they had published excellent results with this combination. This is promacitabom in lymphoma. Uh, this is an uncontrolled study of over 190 people that was published in the early 1990s, but it was based on work that was you know, from the late 70s throughout the 1980s. And what they said was with the median follow-up of five years, the rate of complete response, which means no detectable disease on scan and your lymph nodes had returned to normal size, it was 86% for promacitabom. And we saw a plateau in that Kaplan-Meier survival curve at 69%. And they knew historically CHOP only had about 50% survival curve plateau. So here we are, 20 percentage points better. We have a CR rate that's about 30 percentage points higher than CHOP. Um, this is better. We gave it to 190 people, and we have just simply better results. Of course, that was a phase two trial. So we're comparing apples and oranges. We're comparing 190 people here at the National Cancer Institute to people treated at different hospitals over different periods of time. What happens if you put them to the test, head to head? And they finally did conduct an Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group randomized control trial published in 1993 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It tested CHOP against promacitabom and actually had two other arms of the study, which were novel combinations thought to be better than CHOP. It's a four-arm trial. There are over 1,200 people in this randomized control trial. And this is 1993, it was published. So this is, and, and lymphoma is, is by no means the most common cancer. You know, it's, it's not infrequent, but it's not, it's not one of the top five. This is impressive. I mean, in the 1980s, they put together this study and they asked this question, head-to-head -head trial. And again, the uncontrolled data, the apples and oranges comparison favored promacitabom. Here's what they found. The baseline characteristics are well-matched, as you would expect with a randomized trial this big. And here's the takeaway point, the Kaplan-Meier curves. Absolutely no difference in the time till treatment failure, which is your cancer coming back or death, and absolutely no difference in all-cause mortality between any of the four groups. Promacitabom, CHOP, identical. So just a, few, just a decade before, the senior physician laughed at, uh, at, one of, at somebody I used to know uh, uh, about how WashU was practicing sort of behind the standard of care, and then a decade later um, was found to really WashU was practicing very appropriate medicine. There's less toxicity with CHOP. What happened with promacitabom? At a single institution, the National Cancer Institute, it said, we said we had an 86% CR rate. But the CR rate in the randomized controlled trial, the percent of people who have tumor shrinkage, that's 56%. The first thing you would say is the dose intensity was different. You know, these doctors in these multi-center randomized controlled trials, they can't give the drug the same way we can give it at the NCI. They don't know how to manage the, the side effects. They don't know how to push the dose. They, they lack the courage to give the drug at the appropriate dose. But in fact, they checked and they found the dose intensity is identical between the uncontrolled data and the randomized data. So it is not explained by pushing the drug. And yet, 1993, this was the letter to the editor written by three giants of oncology. The textbook is named after one of these people. Um, they were critical of the randomized trial. They didn't really believe it. Quote, the real danger presented by the report of Fisher et al. is that many physicians may opt to use CHOP in the belief that long-term disease-free survival has been established to be equivalent to other published therapies. They still believe promacitabom was better. Can't explain why it failed in the randomized trial, but we still, it should be better. I don't know why. And if you take this trial to mean you can give CHOP, you know, you really are presenting a danger. Of course, their interpretation was 100% wrong because CHOP actually is, remains the standard of care in this disease. We've added rituximab to it, but we have not changed from that backbone. 
I point out, those who forget history are condemned to repeat it, George Santayana. Uh, just in 2014, Celgene puts out this press release that says, if you add Revlimid to RCHOP, we got a 98% response rate and an 80% CR. I said 80% CR, if you add Revlimid, that's pretty good. It's six percentage points lower than Promacitabom in, in the similar uncontrolled study. So we still make this mistake of putting so much stock in uncontrolled studies, historically controlled studies. Promacitabom is exceptional in one way, and I'll show you how. This is a paper by Eric X. Chen and colleagues from Princess Margaret. And what they did was they were very interested in this phenomenon. Why in randomized trials the results of uncontrolled studies is diminuted or appears to be worse? What's going on? Can we quantify this? Can we look at the entire literature? So what, he, what they're doing here in this study, they've taken every single treatment that they have both randomized studies on and uncontrolled studies. They have both full fox and colon cancer uncontrolled and full fox colon cancer randomized. Now in the randomized study, you can look at overall survival and compare the two arms. You can't do that for the uncontrolled study, but you can compare the response rate because the response rate is the fraction of patients who have tumor shrinking beyond some arbitrary threshold. That should be comparable. You know, there's no reason why a drug should be more potent in the phase two than in the phase three. This has to do with the activity of the drug, the fundamental biological activity. And they find 80 some comparisons, or sorry, 181 trials, and I think, I forget off the top of my head, but you'll see the, you'll see the scatter plot. Here it is. This is the response rate in the phase two study on the X. This is the response rate in the phase three on the Y. And every one of these dots is the same treatment in the same tumor type. If there were no bias in uncontrolled studies, these dots will be scattered around the line of unity. But in fact, 85% of the dots are below the line, suggesting that the phase two response rate is actually about 12 and a half percentage points higher than the phase three response rate. Why is this important? I guess in cancer medicine now, we have many, many drugs come to market. We never have the phase three trial. We, we don't have it at market entry, and we don't have it in the life cycle of the product. And we talk a lot about the response rate of those products, but we're basing that on the phase two study. So I would say don't be surprised if the real world response rate is actually a lot lower, because this is probably, some of this is probably regression to the mean, because the drugs that are advanced forward are the ones with the most impressive phase two trial results. But I don't think that explains it all. Here's promacitabomb. It wasn't part of their study, but it would fall here. So it is exceptional in the sense that it lost a lot more of its response rate than other drugs. They did a univariate analysis to predict what about phase two trials meant they were more faithful to the subsequent phase three. And of course, if they were multi-centered, if they had more patients, uh, if their response rate was higher, they were more likely to exaggerate benefit. Um, and the impact factor of the journal that they were published in had nothing to do with the subsequent phase three trial, suggesting that uh, good journals are not picking better phase twos on average. I think what really, what really is the story of this promacitabomb example, I think it's very interesting. You got the best hospital, the National Cancer Institute at that time, which was really doing the bulk of all cancer-directed therapy. This was prior to, I think, large-scale industry-sponsored clinical trials. Almost all the drugs came out of the NCI. You had the best people. I mean, the person who made that statement that promacitabomb was better was a very qualified doctor. He had the best preclinical data. He had the best basic science data to support that claim. He had the best, you know, uncontrolled phase two data, but he was totally wrong. And I think what we forget is we see the same mistakes being made in 2018 but we don't have any humility to realize that we could be, just like this giant of oncology, incorrect. Maybe a randomized trial will show that we're wrong. And the real lesson here is that historical controls in biomedicine exaggerate treatment effects. This is a paper that was published in, I think, 1982 by Henry Sachs, Tom Chalmers, and Harry Smith in the American Journal of Medicine. They looked at about 50 questions where there were both historical controlled studies, like promacitabomb is better than the historical knowledge of CHOP, and subsequent randomized trials on that same topic. And they found historically controlled trials, 77% were positive, but only 20% of the subsequent randomized controlled trials. In other words, historical controlled trials over-exaggerate treatment efficacy. This has been known since the early 1980s. And yet, I think we continually see a profession that is torn towards doing more and more of these and less and less randomized trials. And that is the rhetoric I think of today. I hope, I hope by the end of it, you'll have more idea of why, why historical control is exaggerated. What is historical control? Historical control is basically saying, um, 
if I at OHSU treat 15 patients with Burkitt's lymphoma with a new treatment regimen, and I find at three years, 85% of my patients are alive and well, okay? And I know that the MD Anderson treated 32 patients with Burkitt's lymphoma in 1977 with hyper and they found that only 66% were alive and well at three years. I will conclude that, look, I have alive and well at three years, a higher percentage than you had in your historically controlled study. So my control is the historical experience. So I think in, in, honest, in all honesty, in oncology, perhaps the majority of our clinical decisions are based on such comparisons. I know that if I treat so many people, you get X outcome. And I know that when they treated these people in St. Jude's or MD Anderson or Sloan Kettering many years ago, they got a certain outcome. My outcome is better, therefore adopt my regimen. That's led to a lot of practice changing things. And of course, a randomized trial is when you get people all consecutively and you randomize them to one intervention or the other. Now, why are historical control trials biased? I think even if you did nothing to the efficacy of a treatment over time, we have secular gains in mortality across many conditions. Part of that is because we probably diagnose things earlier. So for instance, colon cancer. In 1998, if I got a list, 100 people, consecutive patients with metastatic colon cancer in 1998, and we could quantify how much volume of tumors in their body, it'll be a certain volume. Now I get 100 consecutive patients from our clinic today, we quantify the volume of tumor, it's probably less because advances in imaging can detect a tiny sub-centimeter you know, pulmonary nodule. I can needle biopsy that with CT-guided biopsy, and I can count this person as a stage four cancer, when in 1998, he would have been three, stage three, because I wouldn't have seen that, because I don't have a CAT scan that has that fine slices. So we have like this, this phenomenon where over time, there is stage migration in tumor types. We also have better supportive care, better anti-emetics. Uh, those are irrespective of the treatment that may allow you to give you know, the dose differently. So there are lots of reasons why historical control trials might be um, different. And I can't claim to know the full pathophysiology of why, but I know that empirically that is just a consistently observed um, you know, relationship that they overemphasize benefit. And I think the other thing we have a, I wanna mention before I get into the reversal part, I say this sometimes, I think we have a little bit of a schizophrenia in science. Okay, on the one hand, we all know and we believe that it is very, very difficult to develop a transformational product. It's very, very difficult. Even if you're the best scientist, diligent, the smartest person, you still face lottery-like odds of actually coming up with a transformational product. But the schizophrenia is at the same time, we all believe that what we're working on will be that product, right? We, we just don't accept the two, we don't reconcile it. And I asked somebody who was very, very smart recently how he reconciles these two, and I think I saw like steam coming out of his ears because I think I, I broke his system because it, it was difficult to reconcile. So this is a paper by John Yonides, very elegant paper, uh, published many years ago in the early 2000s. Here's what he did. He looked at old publications in Nature, Cell, Science, JBL, the best biological sciences, and he found papers that made the claim, we have a highly promising technology. And then he followed them forward into time with a median follow-up of, I think, 13 years. And he asked, of all the papers that said we had something highly promising, 13 years later, how many actually were transformative therapies? So this is the real question. When you read a Nature paper and we are highly promising, 13 years in the future, what do you think the probability that they're gonna get a drug to market or some product based on that pathway is? He studied this. He found 101 basic science claims during the years he looked with a 12-year median follow-up, I was off by a year, only 20% had ever been tested in RCT. And here he's being very broad. If you find a mutation in a pathway or some pathway, you test an up or downstream drug, he'll give you credit for that. You know, that's based on that work. But only 20% of this led to a testable product. Only 15% had a positive trial, where positive is interpreted loosely, like if the person who wrote the trial is spinning a secondary endpoint, but the primary endpoint is negative, he'll give you credit for that but only six of these 101 claims had led to FDA-approved products. Naloxone, IL-2, pergolide, alpha-1 antitrypsin for COPD, group B strep vaccine, ACE inhibitor. And now, with even more follow-up from this paper, another decade, we find that we use naloxone. IL-2 had a, a very brief use for certain tumor types, but it's been totally replaced. Pergolide has almost no use in Parkinson's disease. This alpha-1 antitrypsin never really took off in COPD. Uh, group B strep vaccine, we don't use that, we use antibiotics prophylaxis. ACE inhibitor has been a landmark class of drugs. So I think, you know, with another 10 years of follow-up, maybe only two or three are used routinely, 
Maybe only two are really transformative drugs. I, and this is the best journals with the most provocative claims, you know, with maybe 20-year follow-up. So I think this is what we have to sort of sort out in our minds. These are very good people, top labs, doing very good work, and they have very low rates of translation many, many years later. So I think science is very difficult, to say the least. But I think we have difficulty kind of really swallowing that difficulty and, and knowing what it means. Yeah, uh, he didn't, but uh, isn't that sampling on the dependent variable? Uh, because it's sort of like, like if you just interview CEOs and you say, what makes a successful CEO? And they're like, uh, the traits of sociopathy come to the top of the list. But most of the sociopaths are in prison, right? You know? so, um, uh, but, but yeah, so I mean, I think, it I think what you need is something that like a priori is a predictor of what actually succeeds. And, and uh, there's been some work by Tannock for cancer drugs. I'll send you some uh, paper later. Uh, but it's very difficult to predict. Um, OK. This is translation failure. And I think it is the thing that developers think the most about. Uh, why their prod what is the barrier to get their products to market? Now let's talk about something that you may not see as much, which is reversal. This is Orbita. Um, where to start this story? I guess we know that you can take a wire and slide that wire into someone's coronary artery, and you can expand a blockage and put a stent in. And you can do that for somebody who has an ST elevation myocardial infarction, which is crushing substernal chest pain, a very ill person. And if you put that stent in in that moment, you can decrease all-cause mortality by 12 percentage points, improve survival by like 12 percentage points, absolute mortality reduction in 30 days. That's like one of the best things we can do in all of biomedicine, open a, an acute, acutely occluded artery. You can also put stents in wherever you want. You can put stents in to me, to you, to anybody with any hint of blockage. And if you do autopsies on people, lots of us have some amount of plaque in our coronary arteries, part of eating food, basically, in this modern world. The bulk of stents, by many surveys, the bulk of stents placed in this country and globally, even approaching half a million per year, were placed for chronic stable angina. That's somebody who, when they shovel, their sidewalk, when they exert themselves, they have chest tightness that comes on reproducibly. Uh, and then when they stop, it'll go away. It's the bulk of stents placed in this country. If you survey people getting the stent placed for that purpose, they will say, I am getting the stent to lower my rate of heart attack and improve my survival. Well, since 2007, in a large, many thousand person randomized control trial, we know that the stent does neither of those two things. Doesn't lower heart attacks, doesn't improve survival. But what we did know was the stent made you feel better. Your symptoms were better. But of course, the stent was compared against taking medications to improve your atherosclerosis. It wasn't compared against a sham procedure where we take you and we simulate doing it, but we don't actually do it. And we tell you we did it, and we ask you how you felt. And that's the way to separate the placebo effect of the procedure from the actual bioengineering effect of the procedure. And in 2015, in that book I wrote, that very few people have read, but uh, some people have read, we speculated that if you actually subjected this to a sham study, uh, it would not win. It will lose. And we had a few hints why we felt that way. One, there was a paper that came out in the 1950s. Some really very bogus surgery was being performed for angina, and somebody did a sham study of that and totally debunked it. We never did that. Uh, the second thing was that the benefit on symptoms was small and it vanished by 36 months. And that's kind of like a classic placebo effect, like a, some small effect that goes away over time. Um, so we kind of speculated that maybe this is just a placebo effect. I mean, we didn't know one way or the other. We said it should be tested. And just last year, in the fall, uh, Rasha Lamy and Daryl Francis from Imperial College London did that study. This is a sham controlled study of stenting for chronic stable angina. And they had something to guide them. Many years ago, they did a trial of stenting versus pills for stable angina. And they used the endpoint of how long can someone go on a treadmill. And they improved treadmill time, something called modified Bruce protocol, by 90 seconds. And if you give somebody one of these drugs we use for angina, you can improve treadmill time by maybe 40, 45 seconds. And if you ask a cardiologist, what's the minimum amount of treadmill time? Because we're talking about like from seven minutes to seven and a half minutes, that kind of thing. What's the minimum amount of exercise time on treadmill you have to improve before it's clinically meaningful? They'll say 40 seconds. That's what surveys of cardiologists say. They powered their trial to detect a 30-second difference in exercise time, and they found a 16-second difference that was non-significant. 
Okay, so somebody said, um, well, your trial is underpowered. And Daryl Francis writes colorfully on Twitter that if you think my trial is underpowered and you're not telling me what you want to power it for, the only thing underpowered is your brain. Because he's powered his trial to detect a subclinically meaningful benefit. It's already too sensitive to detect something smaller than what's clinically meaningful. So if you want more power, you're looking for a triviality. This put you know, a multi-billion dollar a year industry on its head. It's a 200 person randomized trial that really is coming up against 500,000 procedures performed per year. Uh, if you think of the ratio of the number of people who underwent this procedure to the, the, the amount of people it takes in an RCT to clarify its benefit, it's you know, astounding. Why didn't we do this study 20 years ago is the question that I've always had. It's not the only example where the use of sham interventions have unmasked a placebo effect. Here is steroid injection for spinal stenosis. Uh, in 2011, we had an outbreak of fungal meningitis that was thought to be attributed to compounding pharmacies contaminating methylprednisolone or steroid in the Northeast, and a couple people died. And last summer, the CEO of that compounding pharmacy went to federal prison because that pharmacy was very dirty. And people talked a lot about, in the wake of that scandal, why is methylprednisolone getting contaminated in pharmacies? We need to clean this up. But they didn't ask so much, why are we injecting so many people in the back with steroids? And we do that because people complain of back pain for a variety of reasons. One reason is spinal stenosis, a narrowing of the, of the, the, the canal, the spinal canal. And if you have back pain and spinal stenosis, the idea is the steroid injection is an anti-inflammatory. It'll go there and soothe the inflammation, decrease the pressure, and improve your symptoms. And if you did it to 20 people in a row, many of them will jump off the table and say, I feel great. It's wonderful. You've transformed me. Thank you, doctor. And you'll get that kind of immediate feedback and response. This is a very elegant study. It is a sham controlled study. Um, both groups get lidocaine injection, which has a very short half-life. By like three days, it'll wear off. Uh, one group gets steroid, and one group gets saline. And steroid has a longer half-life, and it should be active at three weeks and six weeks. And here they show pain and disability scores. And you don't need to see much other than these lines overlap. There's no difference whether you got the steroid or saline. So you're supposed to see the steroid group is benefiting at three weeks and six weeks because they're getting anti-inflammatory effect then, but you see nothing. And, but of course, both arms move in the right direction on every score. So everyone is getting better, but the group getting the steroid is not getting any better any more than the group that got saline. So it is a placebo effect. Now the question is, is the lidocaine also a placebo effect? You could kind of find a clever way to test that. What's this lesson? Sham controls. We've done some broad surveys of the literature, and we find many examples of sham controls kind of contradicting multi-billion dollar year industries, like meniscectomy for knee osteoarthritis, debridement for knee osteoarthritis. Orthopedic surgery gets decimated when they subject themselves to sham studies. Some other examples. Here's the takeaway. If you have a mechanical, surgical, or procedural intervention that improves a subjective endpoint only, you don't improve mortality, but you improve dyspnea, difficulty breathing, angina, chest tightness, or pain. You need a sham control trial. These are the classes of interventions that there is some placebo effect from the intervention itself. The mere fact that we're doing something on you makes the patient believe that they're going to feel better. And then the question for all biomechanical devices is do you improve outcomes beyond that placebo effect? And the only way to separate that is to subject it to sham appraisal. But this is not by no means the current standard. Uh, but there are people who have called for it. Rita Redbird wrote an article in New England Journal of Medicine where she says this should be the default standard. Um, because we're talking about invasive devices often placed for decades in someone's body, you really want to know if that device is better than an expensive placebo. So we call this phenomenon reversal. Reversal is different than translation failure, because these aren't things that didn't come to market. These are things that were on the market, often for decades, and then they're contradicted. And then they don't go away right away. People still do them. They come up with very clever and elaborate reasons why that negative data is wrong. Daryl Francis is wrong. He didn't enroll the right patients, or he, he, he lacked the power of his study to prove that this works. And he would point out that it was power to detect a benefit below what you thought was meaningful, and it detected a benefit even below that. What do you mean I lack power? So reversal is when a better powered, controlled, or designed trial contradicts widespread clinical practice. And how often does it occur? So we tried to estimate this many years ago in the literature, and we have a follow-up paper that we'll put out soon. 
There is no perfect way to estimate how often doctors deploy something and it's later found to be wrong, but here's an approximation. We took every original article that appeared in the New England Journal of Medicine in a decade, that was over 2,000 articles, and these were read in full by two reviewers. And that's why God invented medical students to do this kind of important work for no pay and little, and little professional reward. Uh, but two-thirds concerned a medical practice. They were something we were doing. Of the 1,300 articles that concerned something we were doing, 1,000 tested something novel. Is my new drug better than the older drug? Is my new device better than the older device? If you test something novel and you're published in the New England Journal of Medicine, I can tell you what you found. 77% found the novel practice was beneficial. So when people talk about that impact factor bias, that selective reporting bias of top journals, this is what they're talking about. New England Journal of Medicine doesn't want to read about your failed anticoagulant. They want to read about the thing that's going to change practice and be cited for the next decade. That's what they want. But we also found 360 practices tested something that we were already doing. These were just a quarter of practices, but these were the stenting for stable angina. These were the things we had already implemented. If you tested something we had already implemented, 38% of the time you validated it, but 40% of the time you found it no better or worse than a prior or lesser standard of care, which is what we call reversal. So we detail all the reversals in the supplement, and actually it's on the supplement of our book. If you're interested in the history of medicine, you should read this supplement. Because anytime you pick up a textbook of biomedicine, it is a textbook is like the Churchill quote, history is written by the victors. The things that are in the book are the things that have succeeded. And the story the book tells is a story of inexorable progress. Everything we do today is better than what we did before, and that's why we do it. What does the book not tell you? The book doesn't tell you that from 1962 to 1972, we did something for many, many years for many, many people, and it totally blew up in our face. That's omitted from the book. The missteps are omitted from the book. The nonlinear narrative is omitted from the book. But here we've resuscitated it for a little piece of the, of the timeline. And if you read this, it's so enlightening. These are the best people at the best hospitals, with the best ideas, with the best preclinical data, totally wrong, totally wrong. They, they, their entire practice falls apart upon rigorous study. And it kind of suggests that we too, what makes us any better? It, it makes you wonder. I think we forget that when you, when you have translation failure, there are harms. You lose a lot of investor capital. Uh, you can lose your livelihood. You can lose your last 10 years of work. When you have a reversal, you have even bigger problems. You have harmed everyone who underwent the practice during the years it fell in favor. Best case scenario, you just did something ineffective. Worst case scenario, you offered real harms. Every time you stent a, a chronic stable angina, maybe one in a thousand people, you shower emboli from the aortic arch to the toes and you cause some tissue necrosis. Some people you actually dissect the coronary artery because you can't slide a wire in there in everybody and have it go silky smooth. Somebody probably died from the procedure, certainly, on average. There are real harms, even if they're only borne by very few. And what did the people gain from the intervention? Did they improve MI? No. Uh, survival? No. Improve their symptoms? Maybe, but no better than a sham procedure. You harm the people in the lag time before a practice falls out of favor. Uh, biomedicine is like a battleship. It doesn't turn on a dime. It turns very, 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 very slowly. And nothing turns slower than when you take a doctor and you make him do something for 10 years and you give him a little bit of financial reward for doing it and you have patients come back to the doctor and tell him, you help me. They get that psychological reward and they become addicted to doing that the way we're addicted to any drug. And then you tell them that that was totally wrong. It doesn't work. Stop doing it. They will not stop right away. They can't break the addiction. They will come up with very clever reasons why your negative data doesn't apply to what they're doing, but they will not come up with better data to support what they're doing. That's what they always avoid doing. There's some data that suggests there's maybe 10 years of inertia before the ship turns. Finally, loss of trust in the medical system. I think we live at a very dangerous time for scientists because uh, there's a growing faction of people who are fundamentally anti-science. Um, they are completely wrong. I mean, obviously, they're completely wrong because science is the best path forward. But the more we have erroneous practice over a decade, we give them kind of maybe some ammunition, even if it's unintended ammunition. But you know, they see reversals left, right, and center. They say, you can't, you can't trust anything the doctor says. You, know, you, you were wrong about that. How can you not be wrong about this? But of course, some things are very well validated. So here's the crux of this kind of talk. These two are very related. It's the same coin. They're two sides of the same coin. Translation, failure, and reversal are, are tied. 
Translation failure is when promising preclinical science and early phase data is followed by failure in well-done RCTs prior to the widespread use of the practice. And reversal is when promising preclinical science and early phase data is followed by failure after the widespread use of the practice. If you have to choose between the two, you want more translation failure and less reversal. But we have a regulatory system that in order to lower rates of translation failure, increase products to market, which looks very good, looks like progress, they have consistently lowered the regulatory standards for approval. And what that will do is it'll lower translation failure. It will increase profit margins, but it will increase the subsequent reversal when years later somebody actually puts these things to very rigorous testing. So I think the worst way to improve translation is to lower the standard for bringing a product to market. If anything, you want to raise the standard to knock out the things that actually don't do what you think they do. So I think developers think so much of translation failure, but reversal is worse for everyone involved, perhaps except for those who stand to make the short-term profit. Lowering the standards for approval will lower translation failure, but it will raise reversal, and this leads to bad incentives. How have we lowered standards of approval? When it comes to oncology drug products, you can get a product to market currently with a single trial with a p-value of 0.05. It really doesn't matter if it's a one-tailed p or a two-tailed p, because we've had both. The lowest the bar has gone is olertumumab, which is a drug for soft tissue sarcoma that had an alpha error of 0.2, 0.199. So we've, we've accepted a lot of alpha error. It doesn't matter if you improve survival or a surrogate endpoint called progression-free survival. You can come to market with either one. It doesn't matter if you've run multiple trials, and some trials are negative, but one trial is positive. You can come to market with the one positive trial. We saw that with adjuvant sutent. We have a negative trial run by a cooperative group. We have a positive trial run by the company. They came to market. These, this is lowering the bar, and let me show you what it'll lead to. Uh, one more example. This is a drug that actually came to the US market, neratinib. Um, this is a drug that is given for women with a certain type of breast cancer. We perform surgery on that breast cancer. We cut it out. And we know that there's a fraction of them that'll have the cancer recur over time. And if you give a drug, the goal of that drug is to destroy that microscopic disease in that fraction, increase the cure rate, and improve survival. And this is what neratinib does, a very costly $10,000 a month drug. This is what it does to those survival curves. This is survival free of disease. It's in actually invasive disease-free survival. It's a composite surrogate endpoint. It's not all-cause mortality. It's, some, it's, a, it's a surrogate for that. Here it is. There's an old saying in oncology that if you can fit a laser pointer between the curves, you can give the plenary session at the national meeting. And unfortunately, I would not be able to give the plenary for this drug because I have a shaky hand. And I can't fit my laser pointer. But one of those curves is better than the other. And at what price do we improve that tiny little sliver of difference? This is the toxicity of the drug, which is taken for a year. Grade 3, 4 diarrhea, 40% versus 2% on placebo. Any grade nausea, 40% versus 20%. Any grade vomiting, 20% versus 8%. What is grade 3, 4 diarrhea? We talk about that in oncology a lot. What does that actually mean? You've increased your stool output seven per day over baseline. If you go to the bathroom once per day, you're going eight times a day now. You have diarrhea so bad you require IV fluids or hospitalization, or it interferes with your activities of daily living. There are people who have grade two or grade one diarrhea who find it so intolerable because they have to live their whole life thinking about their next bowel movement. You go to the bathroom eight times a day, you can't go through your life. Every time you step out of your house, you have to think where the next toilet is. This is incapacitating diarrhea. The quality of life loss is tremendous, all to improve that sliver of surrogate endpoint. Here, I like to show this slide. This is what's going on in breast oncology. These are three large randomized trials of thousands of people in breast oncology. These are the Kaplan-Meier survival curves. Um, one of these is a negative study that actually leads providers to omit something surgical. One of these is a positive trial that led to the FDA approval of a novel drug, and the other is a positive trial that fulfills an FDA post-marketing commitment for a drug. And I ask anyone to look at these Kaplan-Meier curves and tell me which is which, because they're indistinguishable. They're all some sliver of difference between two survival curves. One is negative, one is two are positive. It's all the same to me. So we embarked on this thought experiment. I was looking in my spice cupboard one day. And uh, my parents are from India, and so they often come by the house and stick a lot of spices in there. And I don't know what they are. They're not always labeled. <laughs> and I never use them. They just sit there looking colorful. So it's like looking at this. You see lots of colors. And I thought to myself, if I was a drug company, and I just put each one of these in a gel cap 
and I tried them for anti-cancer. None of these are actually gonna help people with cancer. These are just spices from a cupboard. But what if I ran lots and lots of randomized controlled trials? So here's what we did. We found out that the cost to run a single randomized controlled trial from the US Food and Drug Administration oncology drugs that come to market is about $22 million. That's the average cost. And we said, you know, if you accept one, one tail p-value 0.05 to bring a drug to market, if I ran many, many drugs, 100 drugs, 100 gel caps full of spices, five of those will be false positive by chance alone if I use one tail p.05. Totally inert compound. That'll cost me $2.2 billion, but I'll get five drugs to market. And so my break-even point shown here in the figure is $440 million. If I can get a return on that gel cap of $440 million on the US market, it is now profitable for me to just start testing useless things. Because that is the price where you make more revenue than just running all those trials. Based just strictly on false, this is assuming drugs don't work at all. How much do drugs actually make on the US market? More than that, a lot more than that. If you had two randomized trials leading to approval, it would be $8.8 .8 billion, which is not as much as they make. But one lowers that threshold. So what do we see in oncology? We see 1,000 randomized trials of PD-1 antibodies in combination. We have last week in the New England Journal of Medicine, the FDA Oncology Drug Products Division Director writes an article saying, you tested a novel drug in multiple myeloma, you increased the death rate, you're running multiple studies, the death rate is going up in all these trials, we have to halt this whole trials agenda. And then he says, why are investigators pursuing drugs that don't have activity individually in the cancer? He doesn't realize they're pursuing those drugs because you have created the incentive structure that makes it profitable to pursue those drugs. If by chance alone any of those trials are positive, they're making billions of dollars. So that justifies the whole trials portfolio. Okay. I want to end with one last thought. But I guess my takeaway point here is that um, as a developer, you know, I think you have to think about lots of things that are above my pay grade because I don't understand engineering at all. But the one thing that it helps to have some recognition of is if you looked at your product in a way that was very, very impartial, you took yourself away from it, and you asked, how would I assess this the most rigorously? How could I fool myself, just like all those people have fooled themselves before? What kind of studies would you think about for your product? I think that's the thing we have to ask ourselves more. Because there's no, we don't do anyone any service by deploying products that merely appear to work. We need products to actually do what we think they do. So I'm a big fan of randomized controlled trials. I think they really do sort out this problem. Um, but they, of course, have limits. Randomized trials are great for a certain type of question. Here's the question. You have an intervention that you think benefits somebody. OK, good. That's like most of medicine. And you think that intervention has a modest to marginal effect size. If you think it has a medium effect size and it benefits people, randomized trials are perfect. Because randomized trials separate medium effect sizes from noise and bias and patient selection and all those other things. You don't need a randomized trial if you have a tremendous effect size, OK? You don't need a randomized trial for parachutes. This is a paper in the British Medical Journal in 2004. Parachute use to prevent death or major trauma related to gravitational challenge. These are two OBGYNs, and that's a field where there's not many randomized trials. And so many people may not like them. And they write, it's hard to read, but it says, we think that everyone will be better off if the people who keep saying you need randomized trials would participate in a double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial of the parachute. Everyone will be better off. And their point is, you don't need a parachute. You don't need a randomized trial for a parachute. If you jump out of an airplane without a parachute, what's your death rate? It's almost 100%. But actually, my resident, Michael Hayes, found that there's like some case reports of people surviving. Very few. If you wore a parachute, what's your death rate? It's not zero, actually. There's seven deaths per 10 million jumps, National Parachuting Association. So it's an intervention with a 99.9999999% all-cause mortality improvement within 15 to 20 minutes. That's unheard of. That's the most amazing thing you've ever seen. OK, so what's the limit to the analogy with biomedicine? One, very rarely are any of biomedical processes a single clear etiology. Like falling out of an airplane, what's the pathophysiology to death? That's it. What about heart failure, cancer, diabetes? These are complex multifactorial pathways. Anyone who thinks they think it's one pathway, I think is misguided. But I think maybe trauma is one such thing in, in medicine. If I'm walking out of here and a bus hits me and my femur is sticking out, I'm not going to say do a randomized trial of putting it back in there and sewing it together. I'll say just put it back in there. It was there a second ago. You know, the etiology is clear. 
I don't know how you do it, but put it back together the way it was. The effect size. Do we have effect sizes that big? I mean, we like to think our interventions are great. You know, we believe that. But do we really get 99.9? I'll show you some data. Um, prior parachutes were no such thing. When I started to do this work, I read some papers by this philosopher of science, John Worrell. He said, there's never been a randomized trial of appendectomy for appendicitis, and there never will be. Uh, by four years later, there were four. And actually, they suggest that high-dose antibiotics can spare many, many people from appendectomy. And they had the five-year follow-up in the Finnish series that was published in JAMA, and it shows you, you know, there's no long-term consequence of that. So probably in resource-poor settings, you can just give high-dose antibiotics, and you'll help the majority of people. But appendectomy was no parachute, but it was called a parachute maybe 15 years ago. This is John Ioannidis and Tiago Pereira. This is a very nice paper in JAMA called Empirical Evaluation of Very Large Treatment Effects for Medical Interventions. What I want to say here, the takeaway, is they ask themselves, in all of the Cochrane database, 222,000 randomized trials, 80,000 medical practices, how many interventions in meta-analysis have very large treatment effects or odds ratios of five or better? And the endpoint is all-cause mortality. And the answer was just one thing, which was ECMO for neonates. So actually, like most things have modest effect sizes in biomedicine. Very few things have large effect sizes, and almost nothing has a large effect size on all-cause mortality. Paul Glasio and colleagues, they keep a list of things we have adopted in biomedicine without randomized trials that no one will dispute, like liver transplant for fulminant hepatic failure. And this list is true. I don't dispute it. In fact, I'm on some email servers where this list is circulated and people add to the list. And I will tell you, this list has gone around and around and people have added like maybe 200 things to the list. But we do maybe 500,000 things in biomedicine. So the things that are really parachutes are probably few and far between. So enter Michael Hayes. This is the last thing I'll show you. Michael Hayes was a graduate of this university. He's in practice now. He was a very smart guy. Um, he put this parachute analogy to the test. He took that paper I showed you from the BMJ. It had 822 citations uh, in the decade that it has been published, which, by the way, is really, really good. You know, very, very few papers get to 1,000 citations or more in their lifetime. So this is an exceptionally well-cited paper. Uh, I have no paper that I've published that has yet 822 citations. Maybe someday, but not yet. Um, I asked him to go through every one of those citations and read that paper. And that's why God invented Michael Hayes, to do that kind of hard-hitting work. So he read all those papers. And I asked him, when you read these papers, how many people just mention this BMJ article to say randomized trials are stupid and we shouldn't do them? And how many people have the courage to name names? They're going to say, I have a practice, this is my practice, and it is also a parachute, and here is its name. Name the names. Do you have the courage to name names? That's his question. He finds only 35 people have the courage to name names. Everyone else is happy to just disparage randomized trials, but they can't tell you the, another parachute. But 35 people will name the parachute. This is a parachute. Of those 35 things, Michael Hayes did a systematic review. His first question was, has someone already done a randomized trial? Because nothing takes away the argument that you have a parachute, like the profession deciding we have equipoise and we're going to subject this to randomized testing. And the answer was 18 of them already had a randomized trial. And if you had a randomized trial, six were positive, but five had mixed results and five were negative. In other words, this is actually very similar to the ratio of all randomized trials taken at random from the literature. So like, if you have a parachute practice and there's a randomized trial, the practice you're, you're, you're trumpeting is probably no better than a practice picked at random from the biomedical literature. For the six positive ones, the absolute risk reduction, which again is 99.999% for parachutes, for these practices it ranged from 11 to 30.8%. 30.8% is phenomenal. 11 is phenomenal. That's great. These are great risk reductions. But again, this is five out of you know, 35 out of 822 references. And not even close to 99.99%. The next thing he looked at was there are 17 that have never been tested. Okay, but here's where it gets really interesting. I asked him to say, like, when somebody says my practice is a parachute, you cannot test it because X would happen, something bad would happen. What are they talking about? What's that bad thing? And actually, in half the cases, the bad thing was mortality, 40%, which I agree. That's a bad thing. That, that's like a parachute. It prevents mortality. In 8%, it was live birth. So this is like infertile couples, and we do something to have IVF to have a baby. And they're like, you know, and I think these two endpoints, mortality and live birth, they're dichotomous endpoints. You either have a baby, you don't. You're either alive or you're dead. And they're very, very important. So I would say these are parachute endpoints, no doubt about it. 
you know? What about the rest, the other 50%? Some people say you can't do a randomized trial because there'll be lead migration. That little lead off the end of the device will migrate if you didn't do something. Okay, well, you know, it's not really life or death. Maybe you could fix it. And then 6% were about dental outcomes. You couldn't do a randomized trial of some dental procedure. You might lose a tooth. And I would humbly suggest that losing a tooth is not that big a deal as losing your life. And I'm willing to go on the record of saying that, that it's not as bad as losing your life. I'd rather lose a tooth than my life. That's my statement. Okay. So oncology and medicine has a high rate of translation failures. Um, but historically, that's been because we have used mortality like more often than a lot of other professions. Um, I think translation failure is not the enemy. The enemy is developing something that fools even you and everyone else that it works and it doesn't work. That's the enemy. And if you want to pay that price, better to pay it in translation than pay it on the back end in the market. Um, maybe not better for profits, but better for people and better for your own peace of mind. So I think we should embrace translation failure. We should develop our products as well as we can, but subject them to as rigorous testing as we can. Develop your product like a believer, but test it like a skeptic. And so improving, I think, all medical care depends on randomization, given the unreliability of alternate evidence. I think it depends on randomization for modest to marginal effect sizes, which is most of what we do. And the last thing I'd say is, I think one should not feel depressed that biomedicine offers modest or marginal effect sizes. Throughout thousands of years of human history, the majority of all human history has a medicine where we do not even offer modest or marginal effect sizes on average. We probably offer medicine that is detrimental. You know, George Washington was killed by bloodletting. You know, we've done so many wrong things, trepanation, bloodletting, all these stupid things. We are finally at a period of time in human history where we have modest to marginal effect sizes. That's progress. We should celebrate that. And we should try to do, you know, even better. But we should not delude ourselves into thinking that everything we do will be parachutes. And we should test our stuff very rigorously. So if you like this talk, I would say, you know, this book is good. The, the, the appendix is the best thing to read, if you read one thing. Uh, and the podcast, we talk a lot about these issues. So thanks for having me. The question is, what about the difficulty in accruing patients? OK, it's a very interesting question, because I think you know, you're onto something. Um, uh, and I, I want to like unpack how I think about this. I guess I would say a few things. So like one, sometimes in medical practice, you have like an intervention that you think is suspect. And you want to ask yourself, how can you prove it's wrong? So I'll give you an example. Like in the 1970s, for women with breast cancer, if it was just in the breast, we'd do a radical Halstead mastectomy. We'd cut the breast out, we'd cut the pec major, we'd cut the pec minor, we'd cut out a bunch of nerves, and we'd take out every lymph node in the arm, leaving them with like a lymph edematous arm and just like a, a chest that's like flail chest. You can't even move your arm. This guy Bernie Fisher came along and he said, this is too much. This is a small tumor. You don't need to cut out all this. And he said, I, I just have a strong intuition that you are wrong and we could do less. So his first randomized trial, one might think he would do this surgery versus lumpectomy. But he couldn't because he didn't have equipoise. He didn't buy in from the patients. He didn't buy in from the other doctors who all thought that this was true. So his first randomized trial was radical Halstead versus modified Halstead, where you leave a muscle versus mastectomy. That was negative. Then he did another randomized trial, mastectomy versus lumpectomy with RT versus lumpectomy. So he did it stepwise. So I think that like one of the things about you know, getting people buy-in, patients and provider, is you cannot move people too far. And like Orbita, the sham control, how do they get buy-in? They told everyone, after six weeks or eight weeks, we measure your symptoms, and then we will tell you what you got. And if you didn't get stented and you want to get stented, we're going to let you get stented. You know? You know, we're not going to keep you blinded forever, because they had a subjective endpoint short term. You could measure it, unmask, and flip them over. OK, the next thing I've discovered by doing a lot of this work, um, there are things people say help enrollment. But when you actually like make big data sets and you study that, they don't seem to help enrollment. So I'll give you one example. Like in cancer drug trials, people have said that having crossover helps enrollment. So if I have a novel cancer drug and I run a randomized trial test against placebo, who would want to get placebo? You're dying of cancer. My god, you want to get the novel drug. And in fact, some trials allow you to get the novel drug after progression. That's called crossover. And they say that crossover is a tool to accrue better. But of course, it does one bad thing. It makes overall survival like uninterpretable because everyone getting the drug. So we studied that, and we found that actually trials with or without crossover are enrolling at the same rate. And uh, you know, if you just for a lot of other things, maybe there's a small benefit from crossover. And then the other thing I've discovered is there are a lot of placebo-controlled trials that enroll really, really fast. And I've reached a cynical view over the years, which is that if you have a sponsor of a trial, it doesn't matter what the trial is, 
You could test your drug against placebo, your intervention against sham. If the sponsor wants that trial to enroll and they're willing to put their capital and their presence behind it and like a big corporate sponsor, that trial will enroll fast. And they will get the buy-in of whatever doctors they need to, the doctor will get the buy-in of the patients. So I feel like, I don't know, I mean, part of it is educating people because when you really kind of unpack equipoise and like we really don't know and some of this history, I think people feel a little bit differently. I think a lot of us walk around thinking that like medical technology is like your cell phone. Like this is better than the phone I carried 10 years ago. But biomedical technology is, is difficult to judge the same way a phone or television can be judged. It's often judged based on endpoints that are hard to feel and on many, many years. And we may not have the same kind of linear progress. So I, I try to like, I don't know, teach people as much as I can. But I think it's a good question. Yeah. Yeah, I, the point is that this is like part of intrinsic human behavior. Uh, and I think you're right. I mean, I think all of us who are engineers and scientists mm, who do this for a long time, you know, you don't always do it for the money because, you know, in academics, you're not always paid as well. You don't always do it for the acclaim because you often don't get that. The path to publish is frustrating. Getting grants is frustrating. You have to do it because you believe in it. Uh, you know, that's what motivates you. And so it is so easy, I think, to come to believe what you do works. It's like the, the human capacity for optimism is probably our greatest virtue. And I think that it's not, I, I don't blame people who develop things for being optimistic. The failure is the regulatory state. It's the regulators who should be the ones who inject the skepticism, make you reach for a higher standard. But the regulators have largely been captured, I think, in this space. And they'll do what facilitates the client's wishes, which is expediting products to market. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, so what would I do if I was a regulator? I guess I haven't thought about every single space, but I guess one easy thing in like, in oncology, in my section, which is cancer drugs, that I think a great deal about. Uh, we have a few errors. One, we don't use survival as the endpoint as often as we should. People think that speeds drugs to market, but we have a lot of data that shows that if you're a drug company and I let you use a surrogate endpoint, one of the things you do is instead of going to people whose cancer has progressed on every drug, you go to like all comers with cancer and try to capture that market share. In other words, you barter the speed the surrogate gives you for the market share. But if I forced you to use overall survival, you would go to the third line because it would be irrational of you to go to the front line. The next thing is they test their drug against the weakest drug on the product, straw man comparator. The FDA could just stop that tomorrow. We're gonna reject any straw man comparator. They can use big data to do that because they can say, we're gonna look at what everyone in America is getting and if your control arm is not what people in America are getting, you're out. Most oncology drug trials that come for FDA approval are conducted globally, which is good and bad, uh, but the downside is that many of these places globally do not have the same standard of care as we have in the United States. They're not getting all the same drugs, and so it's really testing your drug against some other drug, and then afterwards everyone goes on placebo, which, you know, which, which is not representative of the U.S. I would say I would make regulatory trials have to adhere to U.S. standards or be conducted in the U.S., because after all, we have to regulate products for the U.S. Cancer trials are like, patients are 10 years younger than average patients. I would say your trial has to look like the actual demographics of this country. Uh, it, racially, ethnically, gender, and age. And because we know drugs work very differently in these all different groups, and once the horse is out of the barn, we're gonna use them willy-nilly. We need to know if it's gonna work on average in Americans. Uh, so there are a bunch of things they could do. They go, everything they do is going the other direction, especially under Gottlieb, because he has been, I'll give you an example. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal when a sham trial found something didn't work, it was called renal artery denervation many years ago. His, his op-ed in the Wall Street Journal says, why did we do the sham trial? It's costly, it's wasting time, it's slowing innovation. He missed the fact that it's like saved us from a boondoggle, you know? So I don't think he fundamentally understands it. And I think that the people who lobby him would prefer it his way because you get more products to market. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. It really means a lot. If you have the time, write a comment. If you want to give us feedback, you can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session, or you can send an email to plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We like to know what you're thinking. What could be, be better? What topics could we cover? Um, how can we improve? Finally, Plenary Session owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley.